Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. State legislators don't have staff members working on conservation bills. So again, you, the person reaching out, the wildlife expert, the hunter and the angler, the person that cares about this are the expert. And so this, the way that this informs it is that, and what I'm setting this up to say is you at your state level as a hunter and angler are wildly powerful. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 77, Tied Up in Politics, How to Help Conservation Through Legislation. First, happy spring to all of you out there listening. The spring has sprung. The weather is uh, slowly getting nice. Uh, We're... Uh, coming off experiencing some some false springs, uh, but that's okay. Uh, you can see with the spring forward time change and with uh, you know the actual uh, date of the first day of spring, you know that that nicer weather is coming, more time outside just because it feels nicer to be out there. Well, today we're going to talk about something not always quite so happy, and we're going to be basically talking about the legislative process that comes with conservation. Today I'm talking with Jess Johnson. She's a co-founder of Artemis Sportswomen, and she's also the government affairs director for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. Now, a lot of the stuff that she's going to be talking about is going to be very Wyoming specific, but we can sort of extrapolate a lot of these topics into the current sort of local and state-run governments that, that we all inter could interact with. We're going to dive down a bunch of different rabbit holes here, uh, but we're basically doing the, you know, doing that in so that we can cover the nuances of policy and why it's important to focus on issues, why we can't hold certain singular votes on, uh, you know, one bill or two bills against uh, certain politicians. And we also talk a little bit about why hunting's exclusionary culture is bad business. Um, And then sort of the the big wrap-up thing sort of that we talk about throughout the entire episode, but then really hammer home at the end is, you know, trying to manage the goals of short-term and long-term conservation problems and how to fix them, and why conservationists always have to fight, why it always feels like we're getting our neck stepped on, and why the fight is not going to end anytime soon. So before I get into it anymore, let's just jump right into the conversation with Jess. Welcome back, everyone. And as you heard in the intro, I have a wonderful guest on today that I'm going to be talking to, and it's Jess Johnson. Jess, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here. (laughs) Beautiful day here as well. We're getting some rain tomorrow. Um, (laughs) Some storms moving through, but that's okay. It's uh, spring is is springing. So that's, that's always a a good thing. I'm I'm assuming that uh, Wyoming 
is typically pretty cold, pretty cold most of the winter, right? You know, well, yeah, you know, uh, I think we had a relatively uh, mild winter, at least in my neck of the woods, but uh, I'm currently down in Cheyenne at the state capitol, as I'm sure we'll expand on later, but uh, I just, we, we just went through a sort of storm of the century and had 36 inches of snow and 48 hours. And so uh, it's been an event digging out, but now it's bluebird day and it's starting to melt and everything's a mess, but it's beautiful. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm going to take your little 36 inch, not little, that's a lot of snow. That's crazy. <laughs> um, but I'm going to take that little anecdote that you just put out there for a chance to tell my little story uh, that I, I love telling the story. It sucked, but I love telling it. Um, a couple years ago, my dad and I drove to North Dakota, left the day after Christmas to go pheasant hunting. And when, you know, took us 30, 32 hours, I think, to get there or something like that, um, sleeping on the way. Uh, and when we got there, the lady at the hotel, the little motel we were staying at, asked us if we, or told us to go buy food. And we said, oh no, we bought food or brought, brought food with us. And she's like, okay, good, because you're going to need it. We're like, wait a minute. Why? Why are we going to need it? She's, oh, there's a blizzard coming. Oh, there is. Okay. Uh, so we hightailed it out there. So we spent all of an hour and a half uh, in North Dakota uh, that was supposed to be a, a four-day pheasant hunt. Uh, and they, it, it turned out, we, we were debating, should we leave? Should we not? Maybe we just sort of get stuck out here, right? Like, oh, we didn't know it was going to be this bad. And <laughs> turned out it was a good thing because they got 27 inches um, and they had basically the entire southeastern part of the state, uh, the, all the roads were closed for like three days. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to, uh, not only would we have not been able to go home, we wouldn't be able to go hunting. Like my dogs can't hunt in 27 inches of snow. Like there's no, that's over their backs, you know, so. Um, that's exactly what happened here. It just shut, it shut the whole sort of southeastern part of the state down. There was a, apparently a bunch of high schoolers around Cheyenne had like formed this sort of little league where they were out on snowmobiles sh uh, shuttling nurses and doctors to the hospital back and forth. So a lot of really cool like feel good stuff. And then one of my favorite things is the Capitol actually got snowed in. So we're down here, our legislative session is in session right now. Um, and I work down there and they postponed legislature for two days. There was like a 14 foot drift in front of the Capitol, like locking the doors in. A vent blew open in the Capitol. So there were like leaks and stuff like that. And our speaker of the house, representative Barlow and our president of the Senate, Don Dockstader, uh, were there pretty early and they had like buckets out fixing like gathering the water from the leaks and they were shoveling ice and snow and I don't know it was a really like feel good like you know community building thing and the fact that our legislators were down there doing something like that when they did not have to was pretty cool and uh, it, everybody kind of pulled together. It, it is a dang mess and no you could not hunt in this uh, short of a um, maybe Boy, snow goose hunting, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Canadian geese, but, you know, obviously not the season. <laughs> yeah, that is, without a doubt, you know, some feel-good sides, uh, you know, some stories that you hear. But I got to be honest, if you're going to hear that anywhere, I feel like you're going to hear it in Wyoming, right? Um, you know, you got to, Wyoming sort of built as one of those states where if you want to get it done, you sort of got to do it yourself. Um, it's, it's a neighbor state. Yeah, it's, you rely on your neighbor and you also don't piss your neighbor off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's, on that note, uh, let's get, um, 
let, let's sort of start getting into exactly what we're, what we're going to be talking about, which is sort of that this wonderful, terrible marriage of conservation and, and, and legislation. Uh, but before we, we get into that, you are one of the co-founders of Artemis Sportswomen. I want you to just let everyone know what, what Artemis Sportswomen offers and why you and your other co-founders found it important to start. Yeah, so Artemis Sportswomen is a, it's actually an initiative under the sort of parent umbrella of the National Wildlife Federation. Um, but it's a program and initiative, a group of women who looked around at the landscape of conservation leadership and the intersection with hunting and angling and realized that it was severely lacking in female leaders and role models and the female voice, which uh, is an important addition to the hunting sort of narrative that we hear. Um, and so we kind of set out to build a program and build a group that would help build a network for women, help with an education base, help with just setting role models out um, and, and creating a different voice in a sort of very male dominated, male narrative uh, lifestyle, like what hunting and angling is. Um, and that married to the fact of that uh, Artemis takes an approach that hunting and angling is a privilege, not a right. And with every privilege, there comes an obligation to maintain that privilege and that obligation is conservation. And so saying that like, yes, we hunt and fish, but we also, you know, take, take that next step, not just pay for the license or things like that, but we are taking that next step, whether that means habitat projects, whether that means just making your own backyard uh, a, a place that is, is best set for whether it's birds and bees or small mammals or whatever, whatever it is you can do that we are ensuring that we are doing that as well. So sort of looking at it as a re reciprocity approach rather than a, I deserve this approach. And it's sort of been built into this incredible coalition of women that uh, are doing everything from bringing women into the hunting and angling, you know, new, new hunters, telling, telling stories around this, trying to change a narrative of just that hunting is this uh, white male sport and that's the only people that can uh, succeed in it, um, you know, and, and, and just bringing another level of diversity to that with the idea of not villainizing those already there. You know, we're never gonna be that group that says hateful things towards men. All we're saying is that our voice counts too. And uh, I, I've always been impressed by the language in which women can use when communicating about hunting. Um, and, and it's been a really incredible thing to see that narrative sort of blossom and, and be listened to on a more national stage. So Artemis being part of the National Wildlife Federation uh, is a national group now. Their uh, program manager is Marsha Brownlee. She's based out of uh, Missoula, Montana, but she is just a firecracker of a woman. Um, and you can, you can sign up and kind of see more about us. Uh, you can find it on artemis.nwf.org. Um, and yeah, I just, it was a passion project that turned into a national organization and it's been really incredible to watch and it's only four years old. <laughs> there, there's a lot of wonderful things about what you just said. Um, I just want to 
mention a couple things uh, with that. One, um, I agree, women typically have a different and more elegant way to describe hunting and fishing. Um, and that's probably probably because they don't have that sort of male bravado that has been sort of the underpin. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just sort of the way everyone sort of acted in hunting. Um, it, although I will say that is starting, starting to change um, more recently, which is a, a welcome sight to me. <laughs> um, I think it's great that you have that the underpin of, you know, the idea that hunting and fishing, fishing and maintaining it as a privilege has conservation as, at, at its base and not just buying those tags. I think that's great. Actually actively giving back to the landscape in some way um, that's giving you wonderful experiences. And then um, just real quick, a shameless plug uh, for anyone that uh, we, we talked about a very similar topic just a, a couple episodes ago, episode 75, we talked about uh, diversity and inclusion in conservation and outdoor recreation, uh, slightly different uh, aspect, um, a little bit about women, but mainly about um, the Latinx community and trying to get them involved, but just in general, the need for diversity and inclusion. And um, for those listening, I'm going to be talking about that a whole lot more because it's hugely important. The guests I get are just absolutely awesome. Um, and you are one of them. I love, I, I love the work that you're doing uh, for your hobby. That's great. <laughs> But your real job is a lobbyist, essentially, right? Yeah, I know. Everybody that just listened, I think, internally cringed and went, ooh, lobbyist. <laughs> but if you're listening to this podcast, she's on our side. This is one of those <laughs> lobbyists that you can, that you can like. Um, the first question is, how did something like conservation get so intertwined with politics? I think, well, I, because when we talk about conservation, you know, it's kind of a placeholder for talking about all things outdoors. You know, conservation has to do with the natural world uh, and everybody experiences it and has a value in it one way or another. Therefore, everybody has opinions about it one way or another. And there's always opinions based in emotion, based in anecdotes and an experience. Um, and that informs it. Whereas when you look at other sort of political things, you know, it's sort of hit and miss on whether folks have experience in it, thinking like, you know, healthcare or, you know, we've all had that, but it, it's not an everyday in our face thing for everyone. I do think the outdoors and nature is an everyday in our face thing for most people. And I, and I don't mean it as in like big wilderness things. I mean, it as like, if you have a tree on your street or a small grass patch or things like that, or a bird that you see fly through the air or a pigeon on a sidewalk, you know, that is all sort of wrapped into that mindset of like conservation or that sort of ethos that we think about. Um, and so I think when we talk about conservation, it, there's always inherently, it's backed by a level of emotion because we as humans evolved as hunters and gatherers, we evolved as part of a natural order of things, as part of a food cycle, as part of this place. And it's only been in recent generations that we sort of removed ourselves from the natural order and sort of exempt ourselves. And so our sort of, for lack of a better word, I'll call it our lizard brain, recognizes the benefits of nature and the benefits of, of the wild world and the benefits of green space. But our culturalized brain has been told separate things. And so 
when you tie emotion to something, inherently you're going to be bringing politics into it because we only ever act on emotion. Uh, we can throw as many facts and data points and spreadsheets at somebody, but unless they have emotion tied into it, they're not going to, you know, fall on a sword for it. And so conservation, I think, initially got tied in that sense when I'm talking about like the human desire. But then when you look at sort of the history of conservation, at least in this country, um, you know, it's starting in the fact of like the first sort of little thing you see about it is this idea that market hunting was no longer sustainable. So, you know, we come in and we trap all the beaver, we hunt all the bison, the white-tailed deer, the ducks, the, the, you know, every piece of wildlife, we didn't have any parameters around and humans are not so great with a free-for-all ticket. Uh, and so we would go out and, and take probably more than we ever needed um, without any checks and balances around it. And that initial sort of thing almost wiped out wildlife. I mean, the Boone and Crockett Club was initially started because they thought that the white-tailed deer was going to go extinct and, and the elk and the, you know, Canada goose. And, and they, they put up these, these big mounts of these specimens so that our future generations would see what a white-tailed deer used to look like because they thought they weren't going to be around. Um, and so, you know, a small group of very dedicated people came together and started working on things that was at a legislative level. So a federal level of, of uh, you know, looking at say like the Migratory Bird Act or, or putting limitations on hunting. And um, that blossomed into the fact that the only way to do that is through politics and through how we pass laws, which is politics. And so we tied this very basic human desire around the outdoors and to be a predator and to be a hunter but we had to rein it in because we had sort of lost our way in that sort of natural sense. And so we reined it in with laws. Laws inevitably are enacted by legislators and that's politics. And so I think it just tied itself inextricably to this. So, but we, we've, we've gotten to the point now where we're so separated um, and, and so separated from our natural world that, that conservation is not always bipartisan, which it should be. And, you know, it gets tied into a lot of other uh, discussions, sometimes by the laws that tie them to it, whether it's uh, talking about gun ownership and the Pittman-Robertson Act and how taxes on guns are uh, levied at the industry level to pay a large portion of money of wildlife management at the state level. So there's all of this just like sticky ties that we've tied to this, but we still have sort of forgotten to tie conservation into sort of the fabric of America. It's part of our history. But when we talk about, you know, being a patriot and being American and being this, very rarely is a conservationist something that is put on that pedestal when we talk about it at like, say, a national media level. Now I'm saying within the hunting industry, absolutely it is, but that's a very small group of folks in this country. That's, you know, what is it? Hunters are four to 5% of the population of this country. That leaves 95% that are pretty unplugged in one way or another. And, and, you know, obviously some more than others, but 
it, it's lacking at the national level. And so again, we have laws that are tying around politics stuff. We have 95% of the population that's pretty unplugged in understanding where those laws come from and why they're there in the history of like how conservation has written itself into this country. And so when you tie that together, you end up with like the, the idea that if you can't put it in an easy to understand bumper sticker, conservation is too complicated for the average American to understand. That's a problem. That's a lack of communication on all of our shoulders. And I'm not saying that it, it, the person that's understanding it is dumb. I'm saying that we've culturalized ourselves out of it, <laughs> um, which is kind of like the story of like when we're talking about diversifying uh, the hunting culture, part of that is bringing folks back in. Yeah, I mean, you just have to look at the the simplest form of messaging around hunting and even fishing, but it's really geared towards hunting. The simplest thing that people take from hunting is an animal gets killed. Yep. So any messaging that anyone wants to put forth that they because they don't like hunting, all they have to say is let's not kill the animals, right? And that's playing on those emotions that you're talking about. So the the messaging from hunting you know it, the messaging needs to diversify and the easiest way to diversify the messaging is by diversifying the people that actively take part in you know that activity uh, you know this activity of hunting yeah you know and as far as like the the killing conversation which is i think a real it's it's a problem in the sense of like I mean, think about our culture as we know it right now. Our culture is incredibly uncomfortable with death. We do everything in our power to avoid it. I mean, we go so far as like pumping our loved ones full of very strange chemicals to make them look alive again without ever talking about like, what is death in nature? Death in nature is oftentimes violent and ugly and raw. And we don't look at it head on for what it is. We, you know, we are humans, we have emotions, we have thoughts, which I think a lot of animals do too. And we resonate with that. And it's, uh, it's inextricable for us to be able to be really uncomfortable with it, where I would say most wildlife and animals that are part of this food system, death is just another step. It's just a fact of life. And for us, it's a, a part of life to be avoided at all costs. And, and, you know, when you have that culturalization for us, then you add in something where we are doing a very like old human activity like hunting that is for sustenance, that is for sort of reconnecting to being outdoors. And you overlie the fact that we're dealing with death and we're only 5% of the population. It's like a triple double microscope kind of thing on us where, like we really are in this petri dish of an experiment of like how well we can communicate before we like before the rest of the population loses interest or thinks we're you know off a rocker and and we either get better at communication um and save our connection here or we get worse and we lose this privilege you know, and it's interesting to me that that the death of an animal is like that sort of sole point that everyone thinks about because I spend hours and hours and hours in the woods doing this activity or preparing for this activity. It is such a small 
amount of time that of uh, that I spend in that activity actually involved with the death of an animal. The vast majority of it, I'm just enjoying nature. Um, I'm a, you know, there, there are many days that I might as well just be hiking uh, because I don't even necessarily, you know, you don't get opportunities. Um, so I, you know, that diversifying the message is something that I have personally tried to do, right? I tried to showcase on my personal social media, um, on the social media for Conserve the Wild that, you know, I try to show all the aspects of, of hunting, of fishing that don't involve that. And I try to show that stuff exponentially more mm-hmm. because that's what actually happens. Like that's the message I'm trying to get across, you know, that I'm doing this to reconnect with nature and then also, you know, sustenance as well. I try to put out stuff when, when I'm cooking up some wild game, I'm going to post about it because this is the reason why I do, it. you know, it's, it's, we need to, um, I, I hate to say this because there's, there's a nostalgic place in my heart for the old style grip and grin deer pole photos, right? Like I love looking at those from the seventies mm-hmm. and eighties and nineties and, and seeing my family like that. But those are just pictures in a photo album that I'm the only person that's looking at them, right? When we put them on social media, anyone can see it. So we have to be the ambassadors and every one of us is it's not like you get your choice about whether you're the voice of hunting or not it's if you put it out there you are 100 percent. so you know that's why you know you're not going to see grip and grim photos from me you're you know you might see some photos from the from that animal that i just took but it's i try to do it in as tasteful as a way of possible um, for my non-hunting friends, because like mm-hmm. you said, we're only 5% of the population uh, <laughs> as hunters. Uh, roughly 5% are, could be, I guess, categorized as anti-hunting. That leaves a whole segment of the population, voting population, that impact legislation, that can be swayed either way. So if I can pre- present hunting the, to the, the people around me that don't hunt as a sport that maybe they don't want to do, but they're okay with, guess what? They might as well be a hunter in that voting booth because they're, they're going to be voting the way that I hope they do on, on legislative issues. So let, let's sort of uh, keep rolling with that legislative deal. Um, there's, you mentioned a lot of the nuances of, of policies and how things are tied together, right? Um, when my representative vote, votes against the Land and Water Conservation Fund, I'm not happy, right? Especially after I've written emails and letters and made phone calls. Um, you put in in the little notes here, you wanna talk about why we shouldn't villainize people. Um, what do you mean by that? Because I got really mad whenever my representative voted against the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Well, well I, I don't think I'm saying don't get mad. Because that's inevitable. You can get mad. Um, there's a difference, though, between getting mad and, and sort of burning a bridge that will not be unburned. Um, and so I, I talk about the nuance and things in that, you know, here I'm going to sound a lot like a lobbyist, is, is from my perspective, you can get really angry at an issue that somebody disagrees with, you know, the opposition of it. But most times, the reason that they're doing it has a lot more nuance in it than they're just a flat bad person. And, you know, I, 
a lot of like, like Wyoming's Senator, Senator Barrasso uh, was, was in favor of the Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, but against the full funding of it. And he had some pretty valid reasons on why, you know, he did bring up, it's really strange to tie conservation work to revenue on offshore oil and gas. Like there is a, there's a weirdness to that. Whether I agree with that or not, you know, in my own personal vote, what I can say is that that is something that was a, like a, a talking point that was worth bringing up and talking about. And if we were to just come out screaming about this and villainize Senator Barrasso for this and rake him over the coals in the media and yell and scream about it in all of these ways, you know, we're going to be losing out on potentially being an ally with him when he brings his federal infrastructure bill forward that has a significant allocation for wildlife crossings in it. He's no longer going to listen to us because we've just burnt the bridge. We've treated him not like a human, but like some poster child of this like evil villain. And we're no longer going to have a valid voice at the table. Um, that's human nature. Like you don't walk up to somebody and like punch them in the face and tell them you hate their shirt and expect them to change their shirt. Well, you walk up to them and you get to know them a little bit and you'd be like, hey man, like that kind of shirt really isn't great on you. Maybe you should try this color. And that person may be like, you know what? I kind of like baby puke green. And you'd be like, all right, we're gonna agree to disagree. But the next time they come out and they have a shirt you like on, you can be like, dude, that one's cool. You know? So there's like this, this thought process of, of how do you change hearts and minds? And it's certainly not by like punching someone in the face. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't come out strong on an issue. You know, you can come out and just wail at an issue and make that issue. And again, I'm saying issue is in like a stance, make the stance something that is dangerous to be allied with. So think like the public land argument that you're hearing about in the West where they're saying public lands in public hands. And that's because in the West here, we have a lot of federally owned lands, Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, National Parks, all of this. And there's a move of the states to say, hey, we can manage this better than the federal government when the underlying thing is that, no, they can't, they can't afford it and they would have to sell it. And therefore all of these bad things would happen down the line. Um, again, this is a pretty Western facing issue, but you know, they've made it so any representative or decision maker, whether they're state level or federal level that brings this up, it's a pre it's, I mean, vo votes broke on it here in Wyoming. Our governor that we elected, part of the reason, like a lot of folks rallied behind him is that he was pro public lands. And he was one of the only Republicans running in that primary that was pro public lands. And I know many hunters votes broke on that one specific issue, but they weren't villainizing me like the, the proponents for or against it. What they were doing is making public lands a popular thing to be allied with. Um, and so there's a difference between, you know, villainizing a person and villainizing an issue. Um, because when you villainize a person, you ruin your ability to work with them in future times. And the way that politics are, it's rare enough we get to reach across the aisle. It's rare enough we get along that if we aren't looking at this as a perspective of like giving each other some respect, even when we disagree, we have zero hope for getting anything done. Yeah, you know, it's, 
you mentioned you mentioned you know villainizing issues and I mean that that public land movement um, it's like the perfect example of that right um, because and it's something that that I hold dear because we have a national forest not far from our family property um, that I love going over to um, you know so I wouldn't want to see that get sold off or developed or anything like that it when that whole concept came up, it was interesting because it was Republicans that were trying to privatize, or, well, shift the ownership of the land to the states. I'll just, that, that was the talking point, right? Um, but me, many hunters are Republicans. It, it's just, it, you're going against your base, right? But, it, it, but only in that one issue, I guess, right? So, yeah, I, I get the idea of villainizing that issue um, and not necessarily the person as a whole, um, because, you know, like you said, when you bring up the great point of when the next issue comes up that you want them to support, you need to feel like they're hearing you voicing your choice to, you know, have them try to su support that issue that you want them to support. Yeah, you know, I, the, some of the most, like, if I could tell anybody that that has a representative that they disagree with, which that's all of us uh, in one point or another, the most powerful thing you can do when they send you, you know, you send your letter of like, hey, I want you to support this, this and this because of this. And here's my thing. And thank you for what you're doing. Please say yes for this. And you get that framed letter back that's like, dear so-and-so, here's my reasons for saying no. And they list all of it. The best thing you can do is send a letter back and say, listen, we're going to agree to disagree on this. I see your points. Maybe we can work on something in the future. Thank you for taking the time to reach out to me, even if it's a framed letter. Because at that point, what you're offering is the high road. What you're saying is I'm willing to work with you. I want to do something. And so if something else comes up and, and they're like, oh man, you know, there was that one hunter in that one state that like wrote something and I just had something come across my desk, like, I wonder, like, what that is. You're opening the door to have a relationship there rather than shutting it forever. And if you don't write back, you know, you don't have to always, but for the issues you really care about, I recommend writing back. And, you know, at some point you're going to agree to disagree. You can always add, be like, hey, did you ever think of this? Maybe here's some more facts, but always end it in that sense of like, listen, like, we can agree to disagree on this one. I hope we can work on things in the future where we can find a point to work together. So what you're saying is uh, firing off a series of derogatory tweets because someone did not vote the way you wanted them to is not the route you should be going. No. Okay, no. interesting. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think tweets are great for staying up to date with what's happening. Um, I think it's fine to to fire off a tweet and be like, was sad to see that, you know, my senator voted no on this, but I'll be looking for places, you know, you just, it's the it's the tone. It's how you do it. Um, does, I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm just, just how and and, you know, the 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 total sort of caveat to the, this, though, is that sometimes there are issues that are worth lighting the bridge on fire for. And you just kind of got to pick those battles and you got to know what the repercussions are further down the line. Cause you don't want to do it with the person who's like the gatekeeper to all the bills going into the environment and natural resource committee, which was Senator Brasso for a long time. Uh, 
you know, you, you pick your battles and, and know, know when um, and, only, and only use those, those bridge burning tactics when they're absolutely necessary. Uh, for anyone listening in Pennsylvania, uh, Senator Toomey is not re is not running again for the next election. So go ahead and burn all the bridges you want with him uh, <laughs> if he does not vote the way that, that you feel because um, he, he's not going to be holding that job here a, after the next couple of years. So that that would be a bridge you could burn if you really want to. If you feel like it you would need also, to. <laughs> I would also approach him with things that you thought could never go through because he was playing a politics game. He might be willing to. Uh, run that now. I already know a couple of local organizations that are running that that sort of route. So I'm hoping <laughs> some good things come out of that. Um, okay, so what what is the process? So you you're working main, mainly at the state level, um, like, and I know every state's going to be slightly different and everything. But what's the general process for a conservation bill? to hopefully get passed? Like what's, what would be like the, the general steps that would be taken? Well, I, I'll, I'll give a little perspective in the sense of like uh, the, the federal lobbyists and I, and you know, people that work at the federal level versus for my sake, mostly I work at the state level of legislation have this sort of running joke where in a federal career, you get maybe one thing you get passed that's really good and it'll take you 40 to 50 years to get it through. You get maybe one. At the state level, you get four to five things a year that you can pass. And so it's a total instant gratification job. <laughs> um, but that being so, when I say that, uh, you know, states manage their own wildlife. You know, states are in charge of their wildlife. And so at state level legislation is when you can enact the most change and the most instant change for wildlife and wildlife management and funding and all of these decisions being made around it. Um, so, so when somebody has an idea or a frustration, like, let me see if I can give a good, well, for, for instance, what's happening here in Wyoming is Wyoming has uh, a lot of public land on the western side of our state. On the eastern side, it's a lot of private land and access for hunting is pretty hard to come by. And so we're having to uh, sort of figure out and get creative on how we do that. Our Wyoming Game and Fish Department has a program called Access Yes. Access Yes is a program that sets up an agreement with a landowner for an access either easement or deal or little roadway um, and sometimes the landowners out of the goodness of their hearts do it for free. Sometimes they do it and the game and fish can offer some funding to help offset the sort of impact that having more people on the landscape on their private land or going through their private land can cause. So access yes has been funded to the tune of like $160,000 a year in our state, which is like not a mu much when it comes to a state budget. It's very, very small parameters. That being said, this program has been wildly successful for what it is, but we're still needing access. So one of our legislators uh, had an idea that he was going to see if he could raise the conservation stamp that you have to buy in concert with a hunting license or a fishing license in our state. Currently it costs 12.50. He's offering to raise that fee to $21. All those extra dollars, like 8.50, uh, get put into a separate account to be used specifically for access work and a little portion of that can be used for wildlife crossings. Um, so he has this idea 
And likely he had this idea and he and his buddies had this idea or they were like, hey, how can we find more funding around this? Now, based off of our sales in our state and what we're looking at um, sort of in a four-year average, we're looking at if this bill passes $1.6 million a year being raised for access, which is a huge increase for like a $9 fee increase that you buy once a year and everybody buys it. Non-residents have the same price as residents. It's not different there. It's $21 if this bill passes flat. So this legislator has this idea. He writes to, um, for us, it's the legislative services office. It's the attorneys or the staff, depending on what state it is, um, to get this bill drafted into statute language. So he's like, hey, I have this idea. Can you guys go research where this fits in statute? So I'm going to give a quick little breakdown, take a pause on this and say the difference between statute and not statute. Uh, statute, for example, would be the fact that uh, you are allowed to say, uh, let me figure this out. Well, statute is that they're raising the fee to $21. Rules and regulations is how that's implemented at the game and fish level. Statute is dealt with by legislatures, by state decision makers. Rules and regulations is usually dealt with by a commission of some sort, whether it's wildlife commission or whatever. Um, so the representative takes this bill to the legislative services office. They find where in statute of the state statute this fits. They write the bill out in language. So you have a paragraph that basically says under line 736B of statute book, whatever, insert this paragraph. And it says, you know, every resident hunter and non-resident hunter will be paying 21. Anyways, like the language. Uh, the representative then takes this, this uh, bill and has to either get co-sponsors on it. So reaching out to his fellow representatives on the House side, so House of Representatives. Um, and then it's also really critical to get support in the Senate because most bills start in one chamber or the other. So this one started on the House side, but it will have to go through a full House vote and then move to the Senate side and go through a full Senate vote. So I know I'm losing some folks here. What I'll say really quickly is that a bill has to go through 10 to 12 different levels of vote to get even sent to the governor's desk. So in Wyoming, our bill goes to a committee the committee votes it out. It goes to what is called committee of the whole, which for us is 60 house representatives. That's all the representatives we have in the state. They have three votes on it, three chances to debate it. And that's three chances to bring amendments uh, where they feel like they can fix it or if they don't like it or things like that. It then, if it comes out of that house committee of the whole, it gets sent to the Senate. And it gets sent to a committee in the Senate that deals with uh, like wildlife specific things. Comes out of the committee, goes to the Senate Committee of the Whole. For us, that's 30 senators all standing around. Those are all of the senators in our state talking about this bill. And they have three votes that it has to pass through that time. This is a chance for the Senate to be like, I want to change it like this. I want to put this in here or I like it as is or I want it to die or, you know, however their stance is. Now, here's the sticking point. Usually, if the bill looks very similar to the one that the previous chamber passed, it just goes on to the governor's desk. But say for instance, and for argument's sake, we're talking about this access bill. 
this is this uh, this fee increase access bill. The House passes it as it is. It's twenty one dollars. It goes to the Senate, and a senator proposes the idea of making it like $150 and it passes through the Senate with a significant different change. They are then required to go back to the house and they have to have a meeting and come to an agreement because it can't be that different before it goes to the governor's desk. So if they have a meeting, everybody agrees, you know, one way or another, they talk it back down to 21 or they find some compromise in the middle. It then goes to the governor's desk and the governor has three options. The governor can veto the bill, the governor can sign the bill and the governor can choose not to sign it but still let it pass into law. So like, if you think about it, the governor's gonna really pull their punches. Very few governors exercise the full veto very often unless there's a constitutionality issue of it or it's just something that is like totally nuts. Sometimes state legislatures put those out and governors have to veto them. Um, but then the other side is that full endorsement is a governor signing it. And then there's usually a little like ceremony and everybody stands behind him and claps as he like signs it or she signs what, it. With like eight, eight or nine different pens too, right? Exactly. Exactly. I have very many governor's pens now and bills. Uh, but the other thing is that they can choose not to sign it. So there's not really a ceremony or anything. And it's kind of the governor going like, you know what, this bill kind of stinks, but I'm not going to like kill it, like whatever. Um, and so there's a lot of these stop gaps to get a bill that passes. It has to move through like a really kind of ungodly level of like debate and voting. And you have to be careful with how you message things, because as we all know, you know, uh, there are different kinds of legislatures in different states. Wyoming is a citizen legislature. They don't have staff. They uh, are take, you know, everybody else has like, they have real jobs. They are taking time off of jobs to be down at the state legislature for eight weeks uh, to deal with this 14 hours a day. Um, they get per diem. That's like some ridiculously small amount from the state to pay for like food and board, but they don't get paid. Um, and so it, especially at the citizen level, no one is an expert at everything. Um, and so if messaging gets sort of hijacked, whether it's like, you know, somebody comes out like, like, uh, we should ban trapping across the state because, you know, it's catching and killing pet dogs. And, you know, that's, that's the headline that gets put out. Putting that sort of that back in the box is impossible. And so that's where like messaging and relationships with legislators come in really handy. So they know me down here as a person of like, hey, I don't really know much about chronic wasting disease or I don't know about like in aquatic invasive species, but you work in that. Can you tell me about this bill? And that's where that relationship building comes. Now, on the other side, when these, you have these bigger states, again, Wyoming is sort of a special case because we're this tiny population. But when you have a bigger state, say California or Texas or just these or like large Pens populations, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania yeah. you have legislators who it is their full-time job to legislate. They get paid for it. They have staff members, just like at the national level. And at that point, you're more dealing with staff members. Um, and so again, though, not everybody is a, a expert at everything. And very often state legislators don't have staff members working on conservation bills. So again, you, the person reaching out, the wildlife expert, the hunter and the angler, the person that cares about this are the expert. 
And so this, the way that this informs it is that, and what I'm setting this up to say is you at your state level as a hunter and angler are wildly powerful. You at the national level as a hunter and angler are very valid, but not as powerful. And so, so as a, as an individual and as somebody, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to see changes, um, we get really sucked into beating our heads against this brick wall that is national politics. And it's a very valid thing to work for. I'm not saying it's not, but if you think about the fact of like what you can change at your state level, how do you make these things better? That politics trickles up. Senator Barrasso, Representative Liz Cheney, uh, Senator Lummis of Wyoming, the, all three of them come into our state legislature and get to know our state senators and our state representatives. The problems that are happening at our state level are 100% problems that Senator Barrasso, Lummis, and Representative Cheney hear about at the national level. So if you really want to like start this like flow of changing things, you are going to have to change your state first. Because um, it's that whole like, it is a great, great, great thing. To, to work on the national politics. And I'm not saying anything against doing that. But what I am saying is that state level politics have a huge, huge amount and they are often forgotten because they don't make headlines. They aren't the things that are like on, you know, national news or talk shows or things like that. Um, obviously the Great American Outdoors Act, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, these were incredibly huge, big wins, but people have been working on these for near half a century. And, that's that's an amazing celebration. If we put half that energy towards changing our states, we would have a better conservation layout, uh, likely than we could ever imagine at the national level. Yeah, it, it's really about um, conserving your time, like use it or using your time wisely. So mm -hmm. if you're going to put a lot of effort into trying to make changes, state level, from what I'm gathering from you, uh, is where you can, you know, sort of make your bones in that you you can really affect the change at the state level. Not that you can't affect change at the national level. It's just, in my opinion, a different route to go. Yes, I'm still going to reach out to my, you know, national representatives and, and you know my state senators that work at the national level. But I'm going to spend the majority of my time working on national issues by involving myself in, in organizations that align with my views on conservation, right? The, uh, the NDA, um, RMEF, uh, NWTF, I mean, you know, Pheasants Forever, these are all organizations that work behind the scenes. And when they come and say, we think you should vote this way on this national issue, they're coming with 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 members behind them of support, right? Um, where in the state, when I come to my state representative, you know, in, in my state legislature, I'm just one person, but that one You're person- one of their voters. Right, one, well, not, and, and not just that, but also typically smaller districts, right? Yep. Um, it, it, it carries more weight. So I'm gonna spend the majority of my time reaching out to the people that work within my state legislation uh, legislators, um, and really just throw my support behind, you know, these national organizations for the national issues, that kind of thing. 
Absolutely, you know, and, and, you know, even at the state level, you know, I, I am the one sole hunting and angling lobbyist that is full-time at this state legislature. Uh, we have some part-timers that come in and out for certain bills, but uh, I'm the only one here day in and day out looking at all of them. Um, and it's, it's amazing because so many groups in Wyoming are doing such good stuff. And, and our niche for Wyoming Wildlife Federation is the policy niche. Um, there's a lot of affiliates that are doing the same stuff. There's a lot of organizations that are doing state level stuff. Um, and I can't tell you how important it is when a hunter chooses to come down and show up in person and testify and tell a story. Cause I, I'm a lobbyist, what I, you know, I know my stuff. I know the facts and figures. I can tell my own anecdotal story, but when the guy or the gal or the kid that shows up that has a story of like, hey, I shot my first deer on an Access Yes program and it was life-changing and I want this to keep going on or things like that. That is so much more powerful than any like, well, there's 3000 acres of, you know, whatever I can say is, is gonna be is pale in comparison to a, a emotional argument. The, the lobbyist job is to provide the science, provide the fact and figures and provide the opinion informed by that. The voter and the citizen's job is to show up and provide the story that connects those facts and figures and opinion to the, the politics. Yeah, again, it's playing into those emotions a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Telling telling our stories. Um, so you, you, we've brought up a lot of talk about sort of national issues, right? The, the public land issue, Great American Outdoors Act, Land and Water Conservation Fund, but then there's also state issues, right, that are vastly important. Um, you know, various ban bills for banning various types of hunting and trapping in California have gone crazy in the last couple of years. Um, New Jersey's trying to ban all forms of, of black bear hunting. Um, Montana's which, just going insane and revamping their whole system. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, the New Jersey thing is, even though I don't live in New Jersey, it's, and I live on the complete other side of Pennsylvania from New Jersey, um, but it does have an impact on Pennsylvania because the, when the black bears, they're getting so overpopulated in the state of New Jersey that they're actually swimming across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania, which makes the, our numbers of black bears increase, right? So <laughs> like, like you wouldn't even think like how does New Jersey affect us? No, the, of course they do. It does. <laughs> um, so my question is, why is it always a fight? Like we have to fight to keep our public lands public. We have to fight to get good conservation funding. We have to fight to stop um, non-scientific bans on hunting and trapping and fishing. Why are, we, why are we always fighting? Why, why can't we just sit back and relax? Why can't we just enjoy our time uh, in the woods and not have to think about these things? I, well, I mean, I think some of it goes back to, to conservation being something we're all interested in, but isn't a fundamental part of our culture anymore. Uh, so, it, so it is something you have to fight for, but, but this is, and I love this discussion, um, we're speaking two different languages. Uh, this is the short-term versus long-term language that we're using. Conservation is a long-term approach. When we are talking about conservation bills and wins, many times we're saying, in, you know, in 50 years, imagine how much access we can have in Wyoming. In, you know, like a lot of times, like imagine how much good this can do. Um, and, and sort of the perfect 
situation for this one, and, and I'm going to use sort of Wyoming terms, but I hope I'm going to set this in a way that everybody can understand this. As I mentioned earlier, Wyoming's revenue is based off of oil and gas and mineral extraction. So, you know, oil and gas wells uh, sort of peppered across the landscape. Wyoming is also home to the longest uh, mule deer migration that we know of. And it's a 150 mile migration. What we're finding out in science through GPS color work is that mule deer teach their young. This is not an instinctual migration. This is learned. It is in, like matriarchally passed down through, through the mothers and the lead does. And so if you think about the fragile of like how much like a mule deer in Southern Wyoming spends its summer in Northern Wyoming, 150 miles, sometimes 250 miles away from, from where they started. And then they travel back down uh, and then they winter down in Southern Wyoming where it's less harsh and, and they have more access to forage that will sustain them through the winter. Now you think that's, it's amazing, it's incredible, but when you go through 250 miles of Wyoming, you're going across state land, you're going across BLM, you're going across national forest, you're going across different counties, you're crossing through cities, you're crossing over interstates and roads and all of this. And then you tie the fact that this is learned from the mothers. So what happens if we didn't know this existed and we put an oil and gas field that is peppered with roads and, and disturbance right smack in the middle of a really sensitive part of the migration, which we figured out we have more sensitive areas than others. We're calling them bottlenecks. So, so places where a mule deer will only go in this one place. And what we're finding about, about mule deer is they dang near walk in their own footsteps there and back again year after year after year. Like they are so, they, they're just almost stubborn to how they follow where they go. But the problem that that sets up is then like, okay, so we put an oil and gas field here. If we didn't know that, and then they just stop going, they stop migrating because they won't pass through this, which we have more science showing that they don't like disturbance and, you know, a certain level, they will just stop, the migration just stops. And that doesn't just mean oil and gas, you could put a subdivision for a community, could be building out, you know, vacation homes or hobby farms and not know what's happening. So if you think about it on this sense, we're going, like, we have to hold on to this iconic migration. From the hunting angle, what I can tell you is that if you've ever heard of hunting in the Wyoming range of Wyoming for mule deer, those mule deer come from Southern Wyoming. Those are migration mule deer. And if we were to somehow mess up that migration, you would lose some of the most pristine hunting in the Western states. It's incredible. But you know, on the larger aspect of it is you're gonna lose the entire ecosystem balance if you lose the mule deer that are going up there. Um, and, and you could potentially lose an entire migration, entire herd. Um, and, and mule deer are sensitive enough. They're not doing very great, you know, all of this. But the other side of it is that elk do this, bighorn sheep do this, antelope do this. Um, and so we go and we put, for this sake, let's just say an oil field there. Now the conservationist is going, you've ruined hunting, you've ruined this migration, you've, you've like, ruined the landscape and the ecosystem. We've lost something that we are never going to get back. And, and that's horrific sounding. That's, that's the conservation approach, which is extremely valid. But it's saying like, it's a little existential in the sense of like, um, the person then who's the short-term argument is like, Wyoming is in a downturn of revenue. And we just lost an insane amount of jobs. And 
we have no funding for our schools because our schools are based off of revenue from all of this. And by saying that we can't put a new oil and gas field here, you're saying that you don't care about the children of Wyoming and you don't care if I have a job or a roof over my head or anything like that. And so we're speaking two different languages in when we're, when we're talking about these issues, which immediately sets up the fight because you have the conservation going, it's like, I don't understand why you don't think this is valuable. How could you not think this is valuable? And then you have the person going, but I can't eat, <laughs> which is immediately like you're going, you know, it, it's a two entirely different languages. And, and obviously I've boiled this down very simply to sort of pull out the extremes of either one of these conversations, but that's where our sticking point comes. And that's why it's this fight. And that's where you bring in the idea of this compromise. And what Wyoming's wrestling with is looking at how we designate migrations, which means how we protect them at both a state and federal level by what we call them. And we're, this has never been done. This is, we're the first state looking at this. We're the first state doing this. All of these arguments have floated to the surface about ways that it is good and bad and, and could be potentially catastrophic and it's going to save everything. And you know, it's, there's all of these extremes, but the, the important part is that you can't just give a blatant statement. You have to hear the other side. You have to hear, understand that short-term argument and provide an alternative. So the alternative to this one is, is that, listen, we have this designation, we have to protect it. That goes without saying. Everybody, even the oil and gas workers, love our mule deer in the state. Many of them are hunters. That is not in discussion. Everybody values it. What's in discussion is how we protect it and to make sure that that protection isn't then precluding somebody from having a job or all of that. And that discussion comes at the level of saying like, okay, so the science says the migration is here. Where are the parts that it is absolutely critical through the science, through the biologists that we cannot have disturbance? And so we pull out you know, little sections and then we say, okay, this is a one mile corridor. Most drilling for oil and gas can directionally drill for like seven miles. And directionally drill means like they go underneath the surface and over. So there's no surface disturbance, which is fine for mule deer. And you say, okay, now like, where does it make sense to have this? Where are oil pads that are already in use that we can then directionally drill from if we want to, you know, and we're sort of looking at that way. So we're not saying no development, we're saying smart development. And that's where we come back from this fight of being like, well, you don't like my mule deer and you don't care if I have food on my table. Um, and so that's where that fight comes in. Is it, it's literally a difference in language. It's a difference of, of, it's not a difference in value. Everybody values it. And that's where we forget. It is a difference in priority because one person's job is on the line. Yeah, I mean, essentially what you're saying is it's compromise, right? It's not that you can't put any oil pad, well pads here, just you know, just not here. Can we yeah. move it one mile to the east or, you know, um, you know, 20 miles north or what, you know, it, does it have to be right here? Because right here is a really bad spot. Let's compromise and say no to this, but you can do, you know, you can do it elsewhere where it's not going to have as big of an impact on the migration or wildlife or the ecology, it, however you want to look at it in whatever state you're in. Absolutely. And, and you know, like I, the, the thing is, is, is 
you know, personally, of course, oil and gas is not good for wildlife, period. It's not good. There is no way that you can frame it and say that it is good for wildlife, but it's here. It is a revenue builder. We don't have other options in the state right now. We're working on them, but we have kicked the can down the road for a long time. And we are still in the, we have to get creative phase. We haven't been creative. So while we're doing this, we have to find that compromise because otherwise they're, you know, conservation is never going to win the short-term argument. You, it's just not. People don't work that way. I mean, you know, we, we have to be, we have to be real about the human impact on wildlife. It doesn't matter what we do. I don't care if it's wind farms. I don't care if it's solar farms. I don't care if it's geothermal. I would argue those are worse than oil and gas. It it, it doesn't, as as soon as a human decides to alter the landscape. Housing bad for wildlife. Yeah, housing Yeah, Snowmobiling, biking, anything. If you put a running trail through the middle of a forest, you are disturbing something. Yep, as soon as I set foot, I'm disturbing the natural world. Right. That that's that's what we do, because as humans, especially now, as you've mentioned, we've really um, we're no longer part of the natural. Yeah, we we have worked for thousands of years to get like remove ourselves from nature. Right. Because that's what makes us as a species most safe. Right. By removing myself from making it so the grizzly bear can't get me, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, making that the, because we're a very sensitive, a, a very sensitive species, right? Making the weather so the weather can't get to me. So everything that I'm doing, everything that we are all collectively doing is bad for nature. That's just the way it is. So I love that you, that you say, you know, the smart way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. We need to find the least impactful way to utilize the resources that we have. And this is also meaning us holding corporations accountable for the impact that they do. Because a lot of oil and gas comes into states, they drill and they set up everything. Then they you know, go bankrupt and they leave and the state is left on the hook to pay for the reclamation. That's a lot of states are like that. And so the, no state, Wyoming is never gonna be able to afford reclamation for all of these places. The federal government certainly can't because of how much we underfund our public land agencies. And so the other side of this is the compromise that comes from the larger, you know, the industry side. And the industry side compromises that, yeah, there are places you can't drill and tough, you're gonna to have to deal with it. And yes, you are going to have to be responsible and you're gonna have to follow these guidelines, whether it's a visual impact guideline or it's a emissions impact or whatever it is. But there is some harmony between both of those. And, and if you do that, we'll do this. And that's that's what that's about. That's how, that's politics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Western Pennsylvania, it's coal country. Um, you, you, know, you wanna start a new coal mine? Cool, you can start. How many acres is it? Okay, you now need to conserve that same amount of acres in sensitive habitat areas, and mm-hmm. there are you know very specific no no touch places, right? I mean, yeah, just sometimes it's too you sensitive. just can't. Yeah, sometimes you just can't. If it's yeah. the middle of a migration of mule deer, and it's a bottleneck, then tough. It's it's a five square mile deal. Find somewhere else. <laughs> I love that. Tough. Sorry. You just, you, you can't, you can't do it here. That, that ain't happening. 
Well, just I want to thank you for joining me. This is this is good. This gave me a little bit of direction on like where how legislation works and why everything's all sort of tied together. Um, I'm still probably just as frustrated as I was at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, but that doesn't the, go away. I'm a no, lobbyist. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine the amount of frustration that uh, you deal with on a on a daily basis. Um, you know, just dealing with politics. That's just the nature of politics. It's it's a frustrating thing. But again, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us about uh, how conservation and legislation are intertwined together. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm happy to. And and I would just sort of end this with the advice that for those of you listening, reach out to your state representatives and your state senators, um, share a story with them about some time in the natural world that changed you and ask to like talk with them about priorities about that. Um, sometimes, you know, senators, they're people, some are not hunters, most are not hunters. Uh, and sharing a little bit of your own experience can kind of help clue them in to, to some of the discussions happening. That is great advice. Well, everybody, that'll do it for today. I want to thank Jess for coming on and, and talking about this very important aspect of conservation, which is how to deal with legislators, why it all got tied up. I mean, it's unfortunate that something that should be science-based uh, gets tied up in legisl legislation. But, you know, I don't know that there's really any other way to do it. It's the system that, that we've um, utilized for decades, uh, and it's worked. The issue with it working, though, is that sometimes it can it can work against us. So we need to be careful, and we need to uh, we need to make sure that we are working for the betterment and doing what we need to to make sure that outside influencers that aren't looking at the science aren't having an impact on conservation, a negative impact on conservation. The hunting community specifically is not set up for dealing with conservation legislation as well as many other groups. And that's due to the non the type of nonprofits that we've developed over the years. We've focused on nonprofits that uh, on developing these, right? We've developed all these nonprofits that focus on dealing with conservation issues on the ground taking donations and, and money and, um, from members and directly putting it on the ground, in projects, in research, which is great. We have done a lot of tremendous work for conservation by going this route. Unfortunately, as other nonprofits have uh, come about that don't look at the science of conservation, uh, they look more towards the emotion of conservation. They've developed a different type of nonprofit, right? So most of the ones that we think of, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, National Deer Alliance, those are all, you know, 501c3s. Um, so they're not allowed to lobby. They're not allowed to have a political stance. Uh, these outside non-science-based conservation groups are not that type. They're a 501c4 or c6, I believe, which allows them to lobby. 
Um, so they spend, that's how they spend their money. Uh, and it makes it very tough uh, on the average conservationist to, you know, have to spend so much time talking to legislators and trying to voice our concerns. When we voice our concerns, one of the things that I want to just bring up real quick um, to reiterate from what Jess said is we need to make sure we're doing it the right way. In today's age with social media, it is extremely easy to sort of fall into the trap of the cancel culture and calling people out for doing things that we perceive as wrong or not aligning with our own beliefs. And I'll freely admit that you know, I, I have been a, a part of that in the past. It's it's much better to work with these people um, just because your representative, either in the state or national government, doesn't vote on an issue the way that you want them to, doesn't mean that they won't vote on uh, another issue that's important to you in a way that you need them to. Uh, so the Wyoming Wildlife Federation actually just posted a, uh, a brief uh, blog post about this and uh, asking people to call in, meaning uh, basically you are uh, letting decision makers know that you and them are really not so different, right? So you're calling into these sort of shared values and shared experiences so we can move forward from a point of agreement. We already agree on, on this. We, wildlife, we need wildlife on the, uh, on the landscape. We both agree, right? Okay, good. Now let's start talking about the issue after that. So um, they just made the, posted this uh, article in the last couple days before this uh, episode goes live. Uh, so I will be linking to that in the show notes if you want to read it. It's a quick read, but it's a good one. And um, it, it just helps to reiterate uh, everything that Jess had to say in this episode. Very timely article. I don't know if maybe that was on purpose or not. <laughs> but uh, again, you know, really work to work with your legislators. Let them know ahead of time. Give them fair warning when you see a bill you know, a lot of our conservation organizations uh, put bills out there like they, they see these bills coming and they let us know that they're there and they tell us to contact our legislators. When you see that it's out there, when they let you know, contact them, let them know that there's this issue and this is how you feel. They should vote yes or they should vote no. And these are the reasons why. And then continue to contact them. Emails, letters, phone calls. Those are the way to go, not social media. That's not going to have any impact at all. Thank you again for listening. Please share this podcast with your friends and family and, and random strangers you meet on the street. And if you feel so inclined and you like this uh, podcast, don't be scared to subscribe to it so that you can get uh, all the new episodes as soon as they're released and as always, until next week, stay wild.